This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Ms. Vermillion and I certainly enjoyed our look back at 23 years of radio for our 1,000th show. We had some highly enjoyable guests and skits from our first years and, and really did not get past 2004 in that review. That means we covered less than one-fourth of our time on the air, so to speak. And so what I think we will do today, for two segments at least, is to look at years 2005 to 2010. In future installments over the summer, we envision creating special commemorations, a show on science authors perhaps, or a program dedicated to some of our original comedy bits. Stay tuned for those. But for today, let's look back at some of our most memorable guests from the remainder of the aughts decade. One of our favorite guests was Vlado Zaravica, our aviation correspondent. One of his most enjoyed clips was his description of flying into a hailstorm in Canada from show number 278. I was working the radar, bent over, dialing the knobs, uh, and it was only yellow and green. We were showing no red thunderstorm cells that should produce such hailstorms and such. And remember, the air traffic controller had just told us that the worst of it was behind us. And we knew that this other aircraft, who hadn't made any diversions, was three to five minutes ahead of us. And they're not saying anything. They're not saying anything. And then it hit us. And it was already so loud at that point because we were in some hail already. The engineer, Mikey, who sat behind me, a good friend of mine, started pounding me on the shoulder. I looked over my left shoulder, and he was pointing up towards my windshield. I looked up at the windshield <laughs> as it was starting to crack. Oh, boy. At that point, time stopped for me. It's, it's one of those things where the way I remember it, and I guess how the human brain works under extreme amounts of stress, I was in slow motion. Yeah. To me, it felt like for four years I was sitting there watching each little crack on the windshield spread out. Well, I'm looking at the photo now, and, it, and this is the seat you were in, and it looks as though it looks as though 85% of the windshield is just cracks. Well, correct. And as you were watching, those were like spreading before your very eyes. Yes, yes. Because wow. I was sitting there, and and I'll, I'll confess, I sat there like a deer, in the, <laughs> with the deer stunned in the headlights thing. Well, I guess you're expecting at any moment, perhaps you're about to get hit by a 500 mile gust of wind. In in my official report to the company on the incident, I at that point I said, and I just sat there waiting to die. I was expecting a, a, a three foot wide by two foot tall dual paned glass of high tempered <sighs> glass to come. From, that it's about two and a half feet away from me to come smashing into my face, followed by tons of ice, all at about 300 miles an hour. Wow. So you're standing there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You don't I'm, even know how long. I I'm guess. sitting there. Well, later I asked Mikey, the engineer, how long I sat there stunned. Yeah. And he said, as long as it took me to reach over, grab my oxygen masks, put it on. And we're, we're trained to do that with one hand in less than five seconds. Then he said, I looked over at you, saw that you were still sitting there, slapped you in the back of the head, and screamed, put on your mask. And at that point, just like in the movies, uh, you see the old war movies where the, uh, the fresh recruit is first time in combat and he freezes up. And when the sergeant comes along and starts screaming at him and hits him in the back of the head, he snaps into action. At that point, I did the same thing. I reacted to within the level of my training, put on my oxygen mask. It was too loud to communicate with hand signals. 
I, uh, uh, the captain and I communicated that he was turning around and descending and getting back, uh, turning back towards Calgary. I got on the radio at that point. Well, I reprogrammed the GPS for him so he, he would know the direction back to Calgary. Cause and the we GPS were, was functioning. The GPS was functional. And at that point, after I donned the oxygen mask, reprogrammed the GPS for the captain, he started the turn. I got on the radio and for the first time in my entire, at that point, 16-year career, made a mayday call. Later, uh, when we were on the ground safely, the captain asked me if I knew that there was a difference between a mayday call and an emergency call. Many times you declare an emergency on the radio. Mayday pretty much means the airplane's going down. I looked at the captain, and this was right after we had landed, and I sat there, and I go, yeah, I know. <laughs> then he looked back at me, looked at the damage, and he goes, you might not have been wrong. From <laughs> that was surely an example of the worst sorts of travel tales making the best telling later. Fortunately, Vlado's aircraft was severely damaged, but they made it back okay. We highly recommend Vlado's telling of the story of the Gimli Glider, which is available, like all our clips today, on our website, radioparallax.com. We also hooked up with Fremont film historian David Keene to talk about Charlie Chaplin's work in Niles back in 1915. That subject always interested me because I grew up about one mile from where Charlie filmed The Tramp. Now, uh, Charlie, I guess, was kind of a, a wise guy. He was only in Niles for a few months in the spring of uh, winter and spring of 1915. And I read accounts where you were describing some old timers saying he was pinching girls on the bottom and things and being a nuisance. Yeah, he was kind of uh, re uh, living his Keystone character for real <laughs> again, except for Edna. Uh, he was he could be a pretty obnoxious character in person and uh he wasn't actually very well liked in niles uh certainly not appreciated for his humor off the screen but uh of course uh the people that he worked with at the company uh really thought that he was the best person to work for so it was quite a contrast between uh, his real-life relationship with Niles and the impression you got uh, on the screen of, of his personality. And I gather, too, another thing that was sort of uh, a part of film history that comes from Niles is that Charlie gets hooked up with his cameraman, the man that stays with him through most of the rest of his career. Yeah, Roly Tothero, uh learned his craft in filmmaking in Niles and uh, was actually making a lot of the uh, Bronco Billy films, shooting those films, uh, while another cameraman was working with Chaplin and Niles. Um, after the studio and Niles closed down, Rowley went to Los Angeles looking for work, and uh, the first place he went to was Chaplin's studio, and uh, Chaplin remembered him and hired him, and. Uh, they ended up working together for the rest of Rowley's career. It's sort of funny for me. I went to go visit uh, visit your museum in, in Niles, which we, we should plug. Uh, the Niles SNA Silent Film Museum located, uh, where can people go? It's at 37395 Niles Boulevard in downtown Niles. It's the old Niles movie theater that was built in 1913. Uh, uh, an original Nickelodeon-era theater that all of the SNA personnel came to to watch movies, including Chaplin. 
We note with gladness that the SNA Theater is again showing films on a regular basis post-COVID, which allows you to sit in the same theater that Chaplin did back in 1915 and watch movies. In 2005, the Watergate figure called Deep Throat was identified by reporter Bob Woodward as having been W. Mark Felt of the FBI. We learned to our surprise that investigator journalist and former FBI agent William Turner had correctly identified Felt back in 1978. We'd previously spoken to Bill Turner and asked him back to query him about this story. Well, he fit the profile, let me put it that way. I knew Mark Felt from the FBI when I was uh, transferred to the Seattle office in the mid-1950s. He was an applicant desk supervisor up there, which means that he was in charge of agents uh, doing background checks on uh, applicants for sensitive, sensitive government jobs. And uh, Mark was a very nice guy. Uh, he was very pleasant, and he was very competent. He was a supervisor. I would say he was okay. in his early 40s then. The buzz among the agents was that, uh, you know, stay away because he's ambitious and he wants to go places, and so you don't want to get caught... Uh, he was an Orthodox Hoover fan, and uh, so the agents gave him a wide berth. Meaning that if something went wrong, it wasn't going to be Mark Felt who was going to be pinned for it. That's right. Okay. The, the, the Hoover School. The Hoover School. So during the 60s then, I guess he did have quite a meteoric climb in the agency, and by the time of J. Edgar Hoover's death in 1972, well, my understanding is he was in essence the acting FBI director. That's correct. Uh, Hoover died in May of 1972, and the Watergate burglary was in June of the same year, only a couple of months later. And uh, W. Mark Felt, Mark was in charge of the investigation of Watergate. He was, in effect, the number two man in the FBI, and he was in charge of the Watergate investigation. So he was in a position to know. Bill Turner was a man we were privileged to have had on our program. We advised pulling up his segments from our website and reading up on him. Very few FBI agents took on director J. Edgar Hoover, but Turner did, then left the Bureau to apply his talents to probing political mysteries. In 2006, former Congressman Pete McCloskey had us travel to his ranch to chat with us. McCloskey was a maverick, a liberal Republican, the Environmental Protection Act was one of his legislative accomplishments. In 1972, he dared challenge a sitting president, Dick Nixon, for his party's nomination. McCloskey told us of his role in revealing Nixon's secret bombing campaign in Southeast Asia. Dick Borda had been my executive officer in the Reserve Rifle Company in San Bruno. And Dick is now Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Logistics over in Vietnam. And Dick came to my office and said, Pete, what's this crazy thing you're saying that we're bombing in Laos and Cambodia? Here's the Undersecretary of the Air Force saying, we're not bombing over there. Wow. Well, I showed him the affidavits. And while he was there, I get a phone call. My secretary comes in and says, you have a phone call from Lieutenant Colonel, somebody at uh, Omaha, Nebraska, or somewhere in Nebraska. And they'd been on television, this argument. And the Lieutenant Colonel says, sir. I'm a Lieutenant Colonel so-and-so of the United States Air Force, and I've just returned from commanding the 
so-called something bomber wing in Vietnam, and you're telling the truth, and the government is not. We are bombing over Laos and Cambodia. And I said, well, thank you, Colonel. Took his name down. Five minutes later, the phone rings again. It's his wife saying, please, Congressman, my husband's been in the Air Force for eight, 19 and a half years. He's about to retire. This will ruin his career. And I assured him, well, I don't need to use his name, ma'am, because I've got these other right. affidavits. Five minutes later, the colonel calls again. <laughs> Congressman, I insist that you use my name. I know my wife doesn't want you to use <laughs> So uh, that afternoon, I later, my friend goes back to the Pentagon, and he calls me. He said, Pete, could you meet me at this address in, in Arlington uh, at 8 o'clock tonight? I said, sure. So I drive my Honda or whatever that little car was. I drive, and it's a kind of a ritzy neighborhood, and it's the cul-de-sac, the address. And I drive in, this, and uh, right at 8 o'clock, this limousine pulls around into the cul-de-sac with two flags on the fenders. And it pulls up behind my little car, and Dick Borda jumps out and opens the door on the left. He says, Pete, I want you to meet my boss, the Secretary of the Air Force. I think his name was Siemens. And so the driver <laughs> turns on his lights, and under the headlights, I show him these affidavits. Well, two days later, it was announced that Nixon had been secretly bombing Laos and Cambodia, that the Secretary of the Air Force was not told, the Secretary of the Army and the Navy weren't told. Only the Secretary of Defense, Miller, knew about it. The pilots had been falsifying, or somebody had been falsifying the records of where they flew every day. But now they had to admit it. So you were instrumental in the whole process, I did not know. Well, you can't trust the government to tell the truth, particularly at the highest levels. They will say anything that keeps them from being embarrassed. On a lighter side, the World Cup took place back in 2006, and our sports guy, Sean Minton, former TV weatherman in Seattle, and a veteran of talk radio, joined us to talk about this event, which rivets the world's attention but puts Americans to sleep. In 1994, we told the story before, but I was coaxed in a visit to L.A. and watching the World Cup final between wow. Brazil and... I guess it was Italy. Mm -hmm. And I watched 90 minutes of kick the ball up, kick the ball back, <laughs> kick the ball up, kick the, to a 0-0 zero to zero tie. They then played 30 minutes to a 0-0 zero to zero tie. In desperation to end the thing, I guess they could have flipped the coin and said winner, winner takes all. <laughs> but they did this penalty kick thing. Well, the same thing happened this week. Right, They right. played to a 1-1 one to one tie, and in desperation to end the damn thing, they did a penalty kick thing. And you know what? If you talk to anybody in Europe, they'll say that's, that's the most exciting thing you could ever have in a soccer match is a, a tie score and then a, a penalty kicks at the end. I mean, bar none. To, to them, them, that's desirable. To them, that's like um, someone kicking a last second field goal in the Super Bowl to win the game. It's just it's just that has that much emotion. Um, they just care about it that much. You know what? I was out shopping yesterday. I'm not going to lie to you. I, you know, if you would have sat me down and said, Sean, you know, I asked you to watch the World Cup, I would have said, Doug, I'm sorry you don't pay me enough to watch the World Cup because you're right. It's, it's, it's boring. We'll never catch on in this country. To get back to your original point, soccer will never catch on. It's going to be like the WNBA. It's going to be the ugly stepchild to every other sport because it just... Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't address our needs for 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 things to happen immediately. The replays are slow. The only interesting thing in soccer is when someone really gets hammered in the groin. Sean Mitten was one of our favorites. He was always entertaining and insightful, and 
We've not spoken to him for many a year. We've got to correct that, Mr. McMillan. We do. At the end of this particular show, we talked about discussing gambling and sports. He said he'd be happy to do that. And given the explosion of sports gambling raging around the nation right now, we, well, we need to find Sean and bring him back to talk it up. Those views we were sharing on soccer were not universally popular. Mr. Paul Dorn, later our bicycling correspondent, thought we were being hard on a sport which is so beloved elsewhere. We respect Paul, but continue our healthy disrespect for what the world calls football, and for that matter, any other sport that reverses millions of years of hominid evolution to ban that brain-hand link. During travels to Central America, I encountered a voice actor extraordinaire, Corey Burton. Corey, a good sport, joined us as characters from the old Rocky and Bullwinkle show. It was pure fun, starting with his Inspector Fenwick from Dudley Do-Right. Hello? Is this Snidely Whiplash? Oh, I should say not. Inspector Fenwick of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police here. Who might this be? Well, I'm Doug Everett, Inspector. We're on the air at KDVS-FM in Davis. Good heavens, man. No one said anything about a wireless broadcast. But why the devil would you be looking for that rascal Whiplash? I've jailed him more times than I can shake a stick at. Well, Inspector, we just, we just kind of thought it'd be fun to talk to. Oh, how odd. I'd have that scoundrel behind bars now if he hadn't moved to California. Well, now that's where we are, Inspector. We're right here in California. Then you may already know Whiplash. He's developing real estate out on your floodplain somewhere. Natomas, perhaps? Well, I can't say. But I assure you the man is pure, dastardly, hand-wringing trouble. Well, thanks for the warning, Inspector, but could you give him the phone just the same? Well, all right, but uh, don't say I didn't warn you. All right, well, that that uh, that was Inspector Fenwick of the Royal Canadian Medical Police. Give me that! Hello? Snidely Whiplash? Who wants to know? Well, this is Radio Parallax. Am I good, man? If you are calling about those Riverview homes, I will only say that a certain amount of seepage is normal in a basement of that size. Well, actually, sir, we're just calling to chat. And the Attorney General has decided not to prosecute, so I think I should be left alone if it's all the same with you. Well, well, Mr. Whiplash, it sounds like you're up to your old tricks. Oh, I'm just trying to earn a modest living in the real estate racket uh, game. uh, The real estate business. Well, uh, a crooked one, evidently. Can you really tell an honest enterprise from a crooked one? Well, uh, Well, sir, often I can't. You see? It's perfect. But listen... If you don't have a subpoena for me, then I really will have to run along. Well, we appreciate your saying hello. Uh, no trouble at all, and um, you wouldn't be looking to buy a home a stone's throw from the levee, would you? Well, not really. A pity. You see, as soon as they throw enough stones, we'll fix the levee. <laughs> it's a joke. <laughs> I made a joke. Well... We thank you for that, Mr. Whiplash. Uh, please call me Snidely Von Dial. And if anyone you know is in the market for some riverfront views... We'll, we'll have him call you. Splendid, my good man, splendid. And, and please say hello to Dudley Do-Right for us. If you insist. I must go now, for you see the caterers just arrived, and I have to get busy adulterating the cake and spiking the punch bowl. <laughs> well, well, good luck with that. Uh, see you later. 
Farewell to all of you in Radio Land. Corey did voice work on Aladdin, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and the Rocky and Bullwinkle movie, among others. In 2007, we spoke with author George Pendle about his book on Jack Parsons, a man who became a rocket scientist, though he didn't have a college degree, and helped found both Aerojet General Corporation and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. Author Pendle told us about what a stranger-than-fiction character Jack Parsons was. George, it's an, it's an amazing story how a young man, inspired by science fiction, got a couple of great institutions off the ground, what became the Aerojet Corporation, what became Pasadena's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. But I don't think we've even scratched the surface of this character, this individual who was Jack Parsons. Uh, if he'd been born later, he might have been a beatnik in the 50s or a hippie in the 60s. But back in the 30s and 40s, can you kind of paint a picture of just how off he was? Yes, it, it was almost as if his character was, was split down the middle between uh, a kind of scientific, uh, rational side and this other side, his personal side, the side which he, he tried, to, tried to invent himself as, uh, as an occultist, as a magician. He, uh, he was uh, absolutely fascinated by magic, and uh, he fell under the spell of an English occultist by the name of Alistair Crowley. Uh, now, Alistair Crowley was uh, many things. He was a poet. He was an experimenter with drugs. Uh, but his greatest claim to fame was as a founder of a religion uh, and of a, uh, an, an occult sect called the Ordo Templi Orientis. Now, Crowley had this idea that the best thing that man could do was to uh, do whatever he wanted. That was his creed. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law was Crowley's creed, and Parsons completely fell under the spell. I mean, as you said, he could have been a beatnik or a hippie, and he really was in the 30s, doing things which people in the 60s were, were much more commonly doing. He, was, he joined this cult and worked his way up, and slowly began this experimentation with magic, to raising himself to a higher consciousness, to speaking with beings on another plane of existence. And <laughs> so by day, while he was making rockets for the United States government, by night he was you know, trawling through, you know, arcane scripts. He was doing magic rituals with his, uh, with the fellow followers of this cult. Uh, it was quite an extraordinary split between uh, his scientific side and, and his occult side. So I gather that, as, as you mentioned in the book, as Aerojet proceeds, it gets purchased by General Tires, and they're going ahead full tilt with rockets. This, uh, this, this odd character was a little bit less welcome than he'd been previously. Nobody could deny that Parsons was a, was really a genius. He was incredible. He was able to control explosions like no one else. He was like this uh, conductor of the orchestra of explosions. And nobody could deny his ability with, with chemicals. But his private life started to intrude upon his, uh, his, his work. And, you know, people started to complain that when he was doing his rocket experiments, he would stamp his feet on the ground and make pagan chants to Pan. Uh, you know, people started to worry exactly what he was doing at home, why he always turned up late and with bags under his eyes, why he was always you know, seducing secretaries back to his large home on, on, on this very tough street in, in Pasadena. And slowly but surely, the science which he created uh, of rocketry in the United States began to squeeze him out. He just wasn't the sort of character, although he had founded the science, he wasn't the sort of character 
that really you could rely on anymore. He was becoming much more interested in the occult, more so than even his rocketry. And those two things don't really go together at times. By the end of 2010, we reached out, as we like to do, to other public affairs hosts at KDVS. Gil Metavoy's program, Crossing Continents, was a music show, but Gil's look at events in the Middle East and commentary on that was fine reportage. After hearing an NPR show about surf rockers turning a Middle Eastern tune into Miserloo, we knew Gil could educate us about it. Well, when you heard it for the first time, I mean, apparently it, it, it became known to Americans when the Beach Boys took a version of it for their 1963 album, Surf in USA. Uh, right. so I'm kind of curious, when you heard it for the first time, did you think, hey, I know that song? Uh, I definitely did. I mean, at the time, I was, I was too young, so I, I missed the whole, you know, Beach Boys and Dick Dale mm-hmm. um, versions, which I heard later. Um, but there were at least two or three versions that uh, growing up in Israel that I heard over the radio. Um, so I, you know, I wasn't aware of those versions from the 60s uh, until later on. Yeah, well, I'm looking at it again. It mentions that uh, it, it, this Greek song is now popular in, 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 in Rebetiko, in belly dancing, Jewish klezmer, it says, American surf rock and international orchestral easy listening, which is, I, I can't think of any other tune that would fit that criteria. Can you? No, it's, it's really, I mean, and that's the funny part, that it's, um, you know, it's really a Greek, Middle Eastern flavored tune, which is really, I think, the only one that had such a wide spread. Uh, and you can find it in so many different music genres. Chris McMillan gets extra points for finding the Middle Eastern version of this tune for our outro. Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We've got plenty more. Stick around.